0: So let's go ahead and we'll start in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come before you. Father, and it is our desire to exalt and to praise the name of Jesus Christ. Father, it is our desire to exalt, to praise, to adore Yahweh. And Lord, we just ask as we go through your word this morning, That the Spirit would work in our hearts, judge our thoughts and intentions, and that we would be open and teachable, and Lord, we would walk out of here different than we are now. We pray this in His name, amen. Okay, we really do have a lot to cover today, so we'll see how far we get. But if you remember last week, we started chapter 42, and we said that's one of the first servant songs we're going to see in Isaiah. We're going to see four of these songs. And the servant is who? Who is the servant in these servant songs? It's Jesus Christ. We we saw we mentioned that the servant in all the songs is one whom it delights in whom Yahweh delights. He is the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. The servant is going to restore one day God's original intent for mankind. All people will eventually worship and honor the servant. And we looked at the mission of the servant, the heart of the servant. And then we saw at the beginning of chapter 42, God's call of the servant. We saw that in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 42. He said, God has called you his servant. Um, And he said that he will be a covenant with the people of Israel. That would be part of what the servant does. The servant will glorify God. And then we saw the servant's song in verses 10 through 17 of chapter 42. It's a song of believers. We saw the content of the song, that he needs to be praised for his deeds, and the fact that he's defeated all the enemies of Israel. And ultimately that will happen when Christ returns. And that led us up to where we, we left off, and that is chapters eight, verses 18 through 25 of chapter 42. So we're going to finish up that chapter. If you're looking at your notes that got passed out, you don't see this, because the notes that got passed out are for chapter 43, which we're going to try and do today. right? So this is still finishing up what we did last week. And this section deals with the hardness of man. And, and if, we te- if we step back and look at what's going on, God has declared His ultimate deliverance. God has declared His mercy and His great through the servant, but the hardness of man still rejects it. Having declared His plan, God once again expresses His dismay at the hardness of his people. He's dismayed at the pride of the nation that that prevents them from seeing their own sin. And uh, let me just read verses 18 through 25. And we're going to do this quickly. He says, Hear you, deaf, and look you, blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or so deaf as my messenger whom i sent who is so blind as as he that is at peace with me or so blind as the servant of yahweh have you you have seen many things but you do not keep them your ears are open but none hears yahweh was pleased for his righteousness sake that he make a great and that he make the law great and majestic But this people plundered and pillaged as spoil. All of them are trapped in caves or hidden away in prisons. They have become a plunder and none to deliver them, a spoil and none to say, have them return. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and hear thereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil in Israel to plunderers? Was not Yahweh against whom we have sinned, and in whose ways they were not willing to walk, and whose law they did not obey? So he poured out on him the heart of his anger and the fierceness of battle, and it set him aflame all around, yet he did not know. It burned him, but he did not uh, set it upon his heart. The servant we see here, as he makes clear, is his people. He's talking about Israel, his servant. And in his first point, he says, Israel, God's servant, is deaf and blind. Um, They see, but they do not obey. And you can look at Matthew 10, um, uh, Matthew 11. And like I said, we're going to kind of go through this pretty quickly. Where Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would, never, they would have repented long ago in, in sackcloth and ashes. And he goes on to talk about all the miracles, all that they saw, and he says, look, if Sodom and Gomorrah saw that, they would have repented. You saw it, but you did not see. You had eyes, but you did not hear. And then in John 6, when they see his miracles and all the bread, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They wanted a king who would feed them. Because all they cared about was their, their fleshly desires. And they were an example. And, and we see that God is going to pour out His anger in verses 24 through 27, that God is going to pour out His anger on Israel because of the hardness of their hearts. And uh, we'll talk about the implications um, when when we finish what we're going to do in chapter 43. But I just want you to understand, how many of you guys pay attention to the news? Right? Right? Israel was attacked by both Hamas and Hezbollah, right? By the way, we have missionaries who live right on a section that borders Hezbollah and Beirut. So maybe we want to keep those missionaries in prayer, right? Once again, Israel is attacked. Their stated goal is to kill every last Jew. Iran, who is their supporter, who, oh, by the way, we just gave you a billion dollars to, Um, has said that their goal is to completely obliterate Israel and to kill every last Jew. And if the reports are correct, when they evaded, they took women and children out in the streets and executed them. Right? Now this is horrifying to us, but if we think about this from a biblical perspective, this judgment against Israel, who is blind, is still going on. And it's going to get worse... Right? It's going to get worse during the tribulation. But I want us to transition now to chapter 43, which is going to be equally hard to get done in the time that we have. So we'll see. Right? But there's some things I want to understand. Chapter 43 is about God's greatness as he ensures Israel's ultimate redemption. Now, if we're honest and you look at the Jewish people throughout history, right, you will come up with two things you will wonder. Number one, how are they still a recognized known people? Have any of you ever gone to the Middle East and met a Jebusite or a a Gigasite or a Hittite, right? Those people groups are gone. Right? Many of them were bigger than the Jews. In fact, if you look at all of those people, the Arabs are still there, the descendants of Esau. But the Jews are still a known, recognized, cohesive people. They are back in their land. We need to understand that what is going on is not just accident. It's not just circumstance. God is working. So as we look at chapter 43, there's a couple things I need to sort of set the stage for. And the first one, um, and we've said this before, but we're going to see it here is the entire Bible is the story of Jesus. Now I bring this up and I keep emphasizing that because there are people in our culture who keep denying it. There are people who call themselves Christians who deny the clear teaching of the Old Testament with respect to the Messiah. It's important to remind ourselves about this fact that we are studying Jesus, the Savior of Israel, because he is also your Savior. He is my Savior. John 5 verse 39 says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness about me. He's condemning the Jews because they think that they are, through their law, their own tradition, will have eternal life. And Jesus is reminding them, look, if you look in the book, you will, as Jesus says, note that it bears witness of him. In Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said this, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, look, I mean, how many of us today sacrifice, you know, bulls and goats, right? We don't do that. It's in the law, though. It's in the Mosaic law. So why don't we do that? Because Jesus fulfilled it. He did not eliminate it. He brought a better covenant. That was part of the old covenant. Jesus ushered in the new covenant. So it's not that Jesus eliminated that. There was, in the Old Testament, clearly a need for a sacrifice for sin. Was there not? Is that not plain in the book of Leviticus? But we know from the book of Hebrews, Jesus said, okay, I will become the sacrificial lamb once and for all. We have a high priest, according to Hebrews, who sacrificed himself. And there no longer remains a need for sacrifice. Jesus didn't get rid of the law. He fulfilled the law. And then I like what he says in Luke 24. This is after the crucifixion. right? And, and I'm, when I go to heaven, I'm watching the DVD of this. So he's there's these guys on the road to Emmaus, and they're walking along, and this dude comes up and starts talking to them. Let me pick it up in verse 25. And the he here is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And he said to them, Oh foolish ones, and so of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them uh, to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That was a seminary class I would love to have taken. Christ himself says, look, I'm going to go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, and I'm going to talk about the servant. That was me. He's going to go to chapter 43, and he's going to talk about it. He's going to go to Isaiah 53. He's going to go to Jeremiah. He's going to go back to Moses, who declares a prophet that will come after me. Right? Jesus made it clear to these men on the road to Emmaus that everything that had happened was exactly what the Old Testament said would happen. Right? And like a uh, man, I would love to have been there for that. The other thing that we need to remind ourselves, and this is, this is an eschatological fact, but it's also practical, is the church is not Israel. The church is not Israel. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. Now, is there a relationship? Yes. Yes. We have to be careful about assigning promises that were made to Israel to the church. The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. However, Israel was chosen by God, and the church was chosen by God. God's character is unchanging. So when God talks about dealing with his chosen people, we understand that his character, as it applies to Israel, also applies to the church. Here's the point of that. When God makes a promise to Abraham and to his descendants and to Judah, that is a promise to who? To Israel. It is not a promise to the church. The church has never promised the promised land. The church is never going to inherit the promised land. Who is going to inherit the promised land? Israel is. All of it. Just as God promised Abraham, they would. Or God is a liar. And I don't think any of us would believe that, right? But on the other hand, we see as God deals with his chosen people, Israel, his character with respect to the ones he chose and loves, is that character also true of how he deals with us? Because we are his chosen people. You are all chosen before the foundation of the world if you're a believer. Right? So we need to make that distinction. But we also need to understand, because we're going to see this in chapter 43, there's some things that God will say about his love for his chosen people, and those are still true of us. Maybe the specific promise isn't. Yes, you're going to inherit Jerusalem, right? The church is not going to inherit Jerusalem, Israel will be. So we just need to keep that in mind. And the third thing is God's faithfulness is not tied to our sinlessness. And that is true from Genesis on. God's faithfulness isn't tied to what you do. And that is a very encouraging thing. Because if God's faithfulness was tied to my sinlessness, I would be in hell. It's important to notice that in previous verses in chapter 42, God talked about Judah and Israel's blindness. By the way, nothing has changed. They're still blind. Most of the Jews who live in Israel today are secular. They don't believe in God at all. However, God's faithfulness isn't based on our righteousness, but his faithfulness and his promises of his glory. And in that, God is most glorified. If I had to keep my salvation through my action, I would be in hell. I would lose it. How many of you guys like that Getty song, He Will Hold Me Fast? Right? I love that song. Because I realize my salvation and my perseverance as a saint isn't tied to me, it's tied to his faithfulness. That doesn't mean I don't work, I don't try to be holy, I don't try to to do everything. Jesus said you're to be holy as my Heavenly Father is holy, right? So, and the next thing we need to understand is God's faith to Israel stands as a testimony to the reliability of the Bible. See, we've been going through this, but I want you to not miss this as we go through the book of Isaiah. Right? A lot of people attack the Old Testament. A lot of people attack the Bible in general. But if you look at the history of Israel, like I said, how many of you have met a Gergesite? Right? Yeah, I'm a Hittite. You know, my grandmother was a Hittite. My grandfather was a Hittite. They're all gone. The Jews aren't. And they never will be. Why? Because God made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David. And he will fulfill those promises. Let me read you a great quote from Dr. James Boyce. And he's going to share a dialogue between the king of Persia, Frederick the Great, and his chaplain. And I thought this was interesting. It says, the king of Persia, Frederick the Great, in a discussion with his court chaplain, once said, give me proof of the inspiration of the Bible. The chaplain replied, Your Majesty, I can answer you in a single word. Frederick looked at the chaplain with some amazement and asked, What magic words carry such strong proof? The chaplain answered, Israel, Your Majesty. Israel. You look at the entire history of the Jews and you understand that you can see clearly God's preserving action in them. The fact that Israel is there today is testimony to this. By the way, we're going to look later at God being involved providentially in the creation of the state of Israel. Prophetically, there are two regatherings of Israel. We're going to see that later today, so I'll just hold off. Um Let me read you another quote. Jews also believe that the survival of the Jewish people is a real miracle. The Jews are the only nation, religion, or people in the Western world today who still celebrate the same holiday, Passover, use the same language, Hebrew, and pray to the same God as their ancestors did more than 3,000 years ago. Although their language and religion has continued to grow and change, its evolution, identity, and continuity has never been broken. In the whole world, only the Chinese and Hindus can boast of similar continuity, but the Chinese and the Hindus were never exiled from their land and then returned like the Jews were, not once, but twice. Um, Nor have the Chinese or Hindus lived most of their history as small minorities, resisting assimilation into the majority. Jewish history and survival are truly and amazingly unique, right? And we're going to see that in God's promises here. And I just want us to be aware of that as we we get into the chapter, because it's important we don't lose the big picture, right? It's important we don't get hung up on little things, but don't realize the big things. So we're going to have three observations that will give us hope and not fear in chapter 43. Three observations, and the first one's God's unchanging faithfulness. Now, that's why I talked at the beginning about we're not Israel, but God's character, because God is going to be faithful to Israel. And God, oh, by the way, is going to be faithful to you. Right, God is going to be faithful to you. Let me read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 43. But now, thus says Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. For when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Well, what makes them think that would happen? Verse three, for I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, and I have given Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and uh, Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give no other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your seed up from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. Whom I have formed, even whom I have made. What a spectacular claim. Right? This isn't just, oh, that's interesting. God is saying, my faithfulness to you is tied to who I am. Right? God says, you will never be destroyed or overrun because I created you and I am Yahweh. Right? I I want us to look at this in some detail. First of all, God's declaration of his own faithfulness. See it there in verse 1? He says, look, I'm the creator of Israel. Genesis 12, Yahweh said to Abraham, go forth from the land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And he goes on to give him the Abrahamic covenant. <laughs> I want you to notice that God says, I will do that. Psalm 95, verse 6. He says, Yahweh is your maker. Let us kneel down before Yahweh our maker. Psalm 100, verse 3. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. God created Israel. By the way, He started with like a 96-year-old guy and a woman that age. How many women in here would like to have their first kid when they're 96 or 100? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of you women are going, yeah, No. <laughs> Jesus says this in Matthew 16. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I share that verse because who created Israel? God did, and he says it right there in our passage, right? Thus says Yahweh, your creator of Jacob, and and he whom formed you. He's the creator. But you need to understand, just like God chose Israel, who did else did God choose? You Jesus says, "I will build my church." Who's creating the church? Jesus is. Who started the church? Jesus did. You know, as elders, we understand we are not the people building this church. If you ever think that the elders think that we're building this church, let me correct that error. We understand we are nothing but slaves and under-shepherds to the great shepherd. We are not building this church. We are just trying to shepherd it. Jesus is building the church. That's what he said. And he says this great, incredible statement in Acts 20, verse 28. Be on guard for all your He's talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd, listen to this, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. How did Jesus create the church? When he when, Yeah. In the upper room, when he gave the cup, and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood i'm now going to apply the new covenant to you church and i'm going to do it through my own blood and he created the church god formed israel he shaped israel for his purposes and his glory why god you know why did he choose abraham god only knows why he chose israel and why by the way he chose us But just as God formed each of us differently, He perfectly formed Israel for His glory. Here we're seeing the majesty, we're seeing the faithfulness. We're seeing the sovereignty of God played out. We're seeing it played out in the life of Israel and played out in your lives. Isaiah 44, verse 2. We're going to see this later, like next week. Thus says Yahweh, who made you and formed you from the womb. Who will help you? do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you uh, Jeshuam, whom I have chosen, they are his chosen people verse forty eight eleven for my sake, for my own sake, I will act for who can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Why is God faithful to israel he's faithful for his own sake, because he is faithful. That is his character, right? That is his nature. And Yahweh is the one who will redeem Israel. By the way, they didn't get redeemed by their own ingenuity, their own thing. It is God who is the Redeemer of Israel. Zechariah 10 says it this way, I will whistle for them to gather them together, For I have redeemed them, and they will be as numerous as they were before. God says that. Not because of anything Israel did. God said that. And he affirms his calling by name. Because he called them, they are his. They are his chosen people for all eternity. Isaiah 49, Listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar, Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he made my name to be remembered. Who did that? Yahweh did that. John 6.44 says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Another way to think of John 6.44 no one comes to me unless God chooses him and calls him. God created Israel, God created the church. And by the way, who is the church? You are the church, isn't this building, it's not that building, it's not an organization, it's not a web page. You are the church, and the Father called you. Think about that. Revelation 2 verse 17 says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone, listen to this, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. God called Israel by name. And what I find amazing in this verse in Revelation, don't miss it, my mother named me Art. By the way, if you ever have grandkids or something, never name them Art. Okay, My mother named me Arthur, but when God calls me, he's going to give me a stone and I'm going to get a different name. God is going to name me. Just like God called and named Israel, God is going to call and He's going to give you a stone with a new name on it between you and God and no one else. That's true. You understand it? That will happen. That is future history. God is going to give you a new name which no one knows but you. And here's the significance of that. It reflects an intimacy between you and your creator. God knows what my mother named me. Jesus knew Peter's name, right? You're Cephas, but now you're Peter. You were Saul, but now you're Paul, right? He's creating an intimacy, but he's going to have a name, and nobody's going to know that name but him it's an intimacy it's like when you have a pet name for one of your grandkids or your kids right there's a there, there's an intimacy in that name this is going to be orders of magnitudes more significant gary go ahead Okay. So, so, so here's what I think, Gary, and you're asking me some details about things that, that I don't fully know because God hasn't fully said, but I think in heaven I'll call you Gary and you'll call me Art. Because it specifically says, who's going to know the name that God gave me? Only God. Let me read you the text again and a new name written on a stone which no one knows but he who receives it. So you won't know God's name for me, Gary, and I won't know God's name for you. So I'll just call you Gary. Is that all right with you? You're welcome. So let's talk about the implication of God's faithfulness. This is important. God's protection. God did not say to Israel they would not have trials. He said, in the midst of them, I will be with you. How many of you folks have seen that? I'm not too much into stuff you buy at Christian bookstores and hang on your walls and all that. But my wife, I don't know if she made it or bought it, but we have this stitchery thing. I don't know what they're called. when you Something like that. Yeah, whatever it's called. It's writing... On stitching stuff, (laughs) whatever it is, but it's it's foot. It's called footprints in the sand. Anybody seen that? Okay, I I really like that. Whereas in the midst of the trial, he goes, "Where were you, Lord?" And you, you look down, and there's there's only one set of foot. So he goes, "Yeah, that's when I was carrying you." See, God doesn't promise Israel they will not have trials. By the way, are they going through a trial right now? Hundreds of people, and that's going to wind up being in the thousands. Hundreds of people have already been slaughtered by these guys, including women and children. They're in the midst of a trial, but Yahweh will not forsake them, and Yahweh will not forsake you. Can I just read you a verse you all know, but we don't think about often? We have people in this room going through some pretty significant trials. Let me just remind you, God says this to you. Verse 37 of Romans 8. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He promises Israel he will not desert them in the midst of trials, and he promises you the very same thing. Nothing will separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean you may not get cancer. It doesn't mean you may not die. It doesn't mean you may not get hit by a car on the way home. It doesn't mean that you may not lose your spouse. It doesn't mean that you may not lose a dear friend. It doesn't mean you won't have trials. It means in the midst of it, He is with you. And God's chosen people are precious in His sight. God's chosen people are very precious to Him. God starts out by asserting who he is and the fact that he is their savior. It's it's plain in the text. God told them that before. God when he when he brought Israel out of Egypt in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6, "For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession." out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Notice the phraseology. You are a treasured possession, Israel. They are still a treasured possession, even though they are in total and absolute rebellion to their Messiah. They're still a treasured people. But what I love about this is what Jesus says in John 15. He did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give you. In Deuteronomy 7, Jesus says, You are a holy people, for Yahweh your God has chosen you. And Jesus says, You did not choose me, but what? I chose you. You are God's chosen people. Jesus chose you. And if you really want to understand how precious you are in his sight, if you want to understand the magnitude of what you mean to God, what I mean to God, let's look at John 17. I find this passage incomprehensible. So I'm going to read you the words. I'm going to tell you what it says. And if you ask me to explain how this can be, my answer is going to be, I cannot. Here's what Jesus says, talking to the Father. This is intra-Trinitarian prayer. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but on those who believe in me through their word. There is the apostles who believes in Jesus through the apostles' word. Who? Us. This is the Apostle's Word. right? They wrote it down, and we believe through that Word. You need to understand here, now he is specifically praying about you. He's not praying about his disciples. He's praying about those who believe in me through their Word. Jesus is praying about Loray and Stan and faith and art. That they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I knew that they may also be in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Do you understand how incomprehensible that is? Jesus just said, Lord, the glory you have given me, which is incomprehensible, infinite glory, that I don't know what that looks like. And the text says that you have given me, I have given them. That is your destiny. That is your destiny. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you have loved me. I'm sorry, and you love them even as you have loved me. Now, I got to tell you, this phrase, this passage is incomprehensible to me because I know me, right? I know me and it is incomprehensible that I am going to share in the same glory that God gave to Jesus. right? And even more incomprehensible, he says, just like, Father, you and me and I and you, he's talking Trinitarian stuff here, Father, just like the Trinity has an intimacy within the Trinity that we can't understand. I mean, do you guys understand it? I don't. I know what it is, I I understand it exists, but we're talking infinite love within the Trinity, infinite unity within the Trinity, and then he says, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they will be in us. He is saying, just as the Trinity has this unity, we're going to share that unity with art. Explain that? I have no way at all to explain the magnificence and incomprehensibility of what that statement is. And you need to understand that is what God is telling to Judah, to Israel, and God is telling to you because you are His chosen people. So... Here's the deal, okay, uh, I, I told you I love that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I'm going to read you some of the words from that song. I am not going to sing them, okay? Yes, Oliver, just thank you. My wife would know that you, you don't want me to sing them. Let me read them to you. <laughs> Gary, will you sing these for me if I give you the words? All right. Let me just read you what what the song says. Those he saves are his delights. Christ will hold them last. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Brought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. Now, I don't know. I just want you to walk away understanding what your destiny is. What the destiny of all those who God chooses, whether it be Israel or whether it be the church. And what are the results of God's faithfulness? First of all, and so, so we're going to talk about some eschatological stuff. Notice it says God is going to regather Israel in the millennial kingdom. So when we read here that he will pass through the waters, and then he says, look, I'm going to call you in verse 5 from the east and from the west, and I will say to the north, give them up into the south. God is going to call every single Jew who is alive and He's going to call them and He's going to assemble them. And they will be His people. And guess where they're going to assemble? In the promised land, where they're going to live, where God promised them. And Jesus is going to be their king for a thousand years. But we need to understand, the Bible talks about two of these regatherings two of these regatherings. The first one is a regathering in unbelief. I'm going to go to Ezekiel chapter 20, starting in verse 33. As I live, declares Lord Yahweh, surely with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. And I will bring you out of the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. He's talking about, look, I'm going to gather you from all over the world and I'm going to bring you to a place where I'm going to enter into judgment with you face to face. He's never said that before. He's never said, I'm going to enter my wrath in you face to face. This is God saying, look, once more last time, I'm going to purify you, Israel. I'm going to do it through judgment. Now, I believe that gathering occurred in 1947. 48. 48. 48. When God created the nation of Israel, and Jews from all over the world came, and He gathered them there. And at the beginning of the tribulation, more Jews are going to go there. And and we know that this is what he's talking about, because he says, when I I do this gathering, then I'm going to enter into judgment with you. And that judgment has not yet happened. What do we call that judgment? We call that judgment the tribulation. It's going to last for seven years. Daniel talks about it in Daniel chapter 9, and the whole book of Revelation talks about it. And the key to understand the tribulation is the tribulation is about who? Remember at the beginning I said the church is not Israel and Israel is not the church? Could I just read for you one passage? It's not in your notes. Just my mind just goes all over when I read this stuff. Let me read you from uh, uh, Daniel chapter 9. You can turn there if you want. Starting in verse 24. He says, 70 weeks have been determined for your people. He's talking to Daniel, right? He's talking to Daniel. He's not talking to an American. 70 weeks have been determined for your people and your holy city. Who's Daniel's holy city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he says, notice this, to finish transgression, to make an end of sin to make atonement for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision of the prophecy and to anoint the holies of holies. And then he, So he says there's going to be these 70 weeks. And then he describes 62 and 7, which is 69. And he says basically after, after this date that Cyrus is going to declare that we're going to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, And we know that date. Until your Messiah comes, is going to be 69 weeks. And we've done this before in the class. You do the math, because the Jewish year is 360 days, and you go from the date of that decree, it winds up being Palm Sunday. And by the way, what did they declare on Palm Sunday? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, right? That is the Messianic greeting for their Messiah. But it says then after that 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. The word in the original language means executed. Did that happen? Yes. See, Daniel predicted it to the day. To the day. But there's one week left. One week left. And that week is called the 70th week of Daniel. And that week is the tribulation period. He says it's going to occur after Messiah is cut off. Doesn't say how much after. And we see in Ezekiel that before that happens, God's going to call Israel. And as he says here, I will enter judgment with you face to face. He's never said that before. What? It's in your notes. It's not in your notes? It's in my notes. It's Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38. Okay, Ezekiel 20. You sure it's not in your notes? Huh. Okay. Okay, well, but there's going to be what he's talking about here, what he's talking about in verse 6, is a different regathering. There will be a gathering of the remnant in righteousness. Jeremiah talks about the same thing as we're reading here in chapter 28, verse 8, where he says this, But as Yahweh lives, who brought up and brought back the seed of the house of Israel from the north land and from all the lands where he banished them, then they will live in their own soil. In Jeremiah 31, verse 8, he says, Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, and among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is labor with child. Together a great assembly will return here. He's talking here about a gathering in faithfulness. Israel will go through the tribulation and God will purify them. He talks about purifying, removing the dross, and then Israel will be gathered in righteousness, and they will we're gonna see this in Isaiah. We're gonna see exactly what this looks like in like, oh, I don't know, chapter fifty three. And look what it says in Isaiah 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by name, and whom I have created my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Verse 11 of, of Isaiah 48. For my own sake, for my name I will lack. How can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. They will be called and they will glorify their God in perfection. He will bring them all. He will assemble them. And this is the faithful promise of their Creator. Because He created them for what? And we see in Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 48, that's exactly what's going to happen. By the way, He called you for what? Right? 1 Corinthians 10, you exist to do what? Glorify Him and you will do that in perfection for eternity. Right? Right? we're going to finish this. I want you to look at verses 8 through 13, and I want you to see the second observation. And that second observation is God's eternal sovereignty. This should be a great encouragement to you. This should be an encouragement. Verse 8, Bring out all the peoples who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears, All the nations have gathered together, so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this, and make us hear the former things? Let them present their witnesses, that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Listen to this, verse 11. I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and caused it to be heard. And there is no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am He. And there is none who can deliver you out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? (coughs) you understand what God's doing here? Do you understand the magnificence of what He is doing? He is saying, look, Bring out the blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. God is going to call a court. That's the language he's using here. He calls a court, and He calls out, he's using the language of a court, and he says, okay, let's present the witnesses to see the purpose. First of all, God claws the blind, calls the blind and the deaf to witness Uh, to defend their idols. These are people who are spiritually blind. And he says, okay, let's defend your position. You want autonomy? You want to say that I can be whatever I am? I am my own God. So God says, okay, give me some evidence. He calls the blind and the deaf Says this in Romans 11, verse 34 For who has known the mind of the Lord, who became his counselor, or who is first given to him that he might be repaid to him? Right? God doesn't need any of this. No one can defend them. The nations have no defense, no one answers. Their idols are undefendable before God. They stand accused and they will not be able to defend themselves. You look around the world today at all these people who shake their fist at God with their teeth clenched, who claim, who is the idol now? How many people are carving wooden idols today? I don't see much of that. I haven't seen a totem pole anywhere in my neighborhood. You know, one of the things that grieves me is when I drive to church, I see all these people walking their dogs, and and none of them even care what today is. They don't know the Lord, nor do they care. And it grieves me. I mean, today we wave to like five of them. You know, I want to be pleasant to them. Who is their God? Who is the God of America today? I am Right? And there are people who will use that words, those languages. There's a very interesting book called "Homo Deus." I forget the name of the author. I read it. Basically, it's about why it's time we recognize we are God. I mean, the book's amazing. Uh, I think it's called "Homo Deus. Human God. And the whole book, the whole premise of the book is you are God. You are God. Anything God claimed he can do, you can now do. Yeah. Well, it tells us here, God is going to hold court. Then God is going to give evidence for his sovereignty. The blind and the deaf defending their idols have nothing to offer in the presence of God, and now God calls Israel as his witness. He says, Israel, take the stand. Israel witnessed of all God's wonders and his sovereign protection, the servant whom he chose, they should be defending God. That's his point. You ought to be defending God. I have defended you. Psalm 96, verse 2. Well, let me just go to verse three. Recount his glory among the nations, his wondrous deed among the peoples. That's what Israel's supposed to be doing. They're his chosen people. But can I read you another verse? Good. Acts one eight. It says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come uh, has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the end of the earth. He's talking to his apostles there as he's getting ready to ascend to heaven. And he says, look, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. That applies to you, by the way. And your calling then is to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the end of the earth. You look at the phrase end of the earth in the original language, it means Texas. Not really, doesn't it? That, was, that was kind of paraphrase. Would it be a witness everywhere? Why? Because you've received power from the Holy Spirit. By the way, what does a witness do? Just proclaims what he saw. Tell what you know. Do you know the gospel to be true? How do you know? How do you know the gospel's true? Because of what it has done in your life. I know the gospel is true because I know what it did to me. I can be a witness of that. First Peter 3, verse 15 says this: But sanctify Christ Jesus as Lord in your hearts, always ready, always being ready to make a defense. To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear, be ready to make a be ready to be called to the stand. And if you're called to the stand, you're going to make a defense for Yahweh. You're going to make a defense for Jesus Christ, your Lord. And one last thing, I want you to look that God, and this is incredible, look at verse 13 here, as God proclaims his sovereignty. Even from eternity, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver you out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? See, God's talking to the idols now. He's talking in this court to those blind and those who have those idols, and he goes, okay, let me proclaim my power. Israel is God's witness, but in the end, the only word that matters is God's word. God himself says that from eternity past, he is the self-existent one. He is the God who is God and who can deliver or thwart his plans. What is the answer to that question? No one. And why is that important for you all sitting here today? He's talking to Judah here, He's talking to Israel. Why is that important for you? Because does God have a plan for you? you are, are you not his chosen people? Right? We are all chosen. God doesn't say that plan won't be, I will bring you through the fire. God doesn't say that. In fact, he says you're going to have fire and floods and all these other things and all these trials but I will be with you. Then he says this great promise. There is no one who can deliver you out of my hand. I act and no one can reverse it. God is saying, I'm going to do my will in your life for you, my glory, and I'm going to be alongside you. I'm going to walk alongside you. I'm going to love you. And nobody is going to stop that. I am the self-existent one. How do I know God will do what he says? Because nobody can stop him, because he is God. I mean, the, 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 the proclamation here is amazing. Even from eternity, I am he. I am. Right? Just let me remind you in John 8. Right? In John 8. The Pharisees were saying, "Who do you say I am?" And he says, "Look, Abraham even knew my stuff." And he goes, "Yeah, you weren't even born back then." And then Jesus makes this, this incredible statement: "But before Abraham was, I am." Notice the phrase here: "Who can um, from eternity past, I am He. I am He." That's where we get the word Yahweh from. That's what Jesus said. I am. Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-nine. See now that I, I am he, and there is no gods beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver you from my hand. No one will take you out of my hand, and if I go into judgment with you, no one will save you. All right? If you rebel against me, no one will save you out of my hand. Daniel says this in Daniel 4 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Oh, by the way, you know who's saying this in Daniel 4? Nebuchadnezzar is saying this. I am the great king, Nebuchadnezzar. God says, oh yeah? Let me show you who's king. What does God do to Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, he he makes him eat grass for seven periods of time. Seven years, seven months, seven whatevers. What? I don't know how long it was. Afterwards, God got Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can strike against His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Who can say that? No one. No one. I just want you to understand God will be faithful to His chosen people, Israel. I hope you're praying for them right now. Right, You should be. See, even though they've sinned and rebelled against God, one day God will be faithful to them. In a sense, they're sort of like your family that doesn't believe. They're chosen like we are. Now, a lot of the people living in Israel today are not chosen. Right? and no one will deliver them out of God's hand. But one day God is going to call Israel back from all over the world. And he is going to according to the new covenant, right? Which is by the way, who's the new covenant applied to? Who is the promise given to? Here, let's let's read. I don't know. Let's see. Jeremiah 31 Who's it written to? Verse twenty-seven. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will sh- I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of men and with the seed of beasts. And then he goes to to say, But everyone, um, thirty-one verse. Let me go down to verse thirty-one. Behold, days are to coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house. of of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I cut with their fathers in the day that I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. And this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel in those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on my heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each his brother, saying, "No, Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's the new covenant. And who's it given to? Israel. Judah. God is going to call them from all over the world and he's going to pour out. In Ezekiel 36, we read basically the same thing. He's talking about the New Covenant. He says, I'm going to take their hearts of stone and I'm going to replace them with a heart of flesh. Then you go, well, that's to Judah and Israel. Well, not so fast. Read the book of Hebrews. When Jesus instituted the Lord's table, he said, this is the cup of what? The new covenant in my blood, do this in remembrance of me, the book of Hebrews is all about the fact that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Who's the mediator of the new covenant? Jesus. Jesus is our new high priest. He's the mediator of the new covenant. He took the promise that was given to Israel and he gave it to each one of you. You are saved because you are covered by the new covenant. He forgives your iniquity. He's going to give you a new heart. It says that he's going to put his spirit within them. He put his spirit within you. All right? Nobody is going to be able to stop that. They are God's chosen people, you are God's chosen people. All right? So I didn't really think I'd finish this. We'll pick it up in the third point. God's chastening through Babylon. And we'll pick it up there. And um, we will finish it. And then I'll tell you, you should be reading ahead. Right? Chapter 44 is real. The whole rest of the book. There isn't going to be a chapter that isn't going to be like this in the rest of the book. Right? We're, we're in the fun stuff in Isaiah. Your Creator says, I am He and I have chosen you. Right? We're seeing what God is doing with Israel, but we understand God is dealing with us in the same way because we are his chosen ones. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed. Lord, how do I stand before your word? You have declared, I am he from all eternity. your plans will not be thwarted. And Lord, I know you have a plan for me. And you started that plan from before the foundation of the world. You have chosen me. You have chosen the people of this room. You have chosen all the believers in this church. And Lord, I pray as we go to worship you, you would be pleased because we will see you anew. We will bow down before you and go, he is the one. We will be the witness Israel was supposed to be. And Lord, I pray you would be glorified in our lives and in our worship. We pray this in his name. Amen.